the luminaries of Christian history who basically say something along the lines of, I misunderstood the Bible, then I understood it, and now I'm a preacher. You know, now I've, I've, been, I've become a, a Moravian missionary. Now I am, I'm about to be killed by lions, but I don't care. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm not here with anyone this week. My regular co-hosts, Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, are both on vacation. So instead of a regular podcast episode, we have a special treat for you this week. Today's show is a repost of a lecture given by our own J.D. Koch on how to read the Bible. It's actually the first session of a class he taught in October of 2020 for his former parish, Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, on the Ten Commandments. This session stands on its own, though, and we're calling it, for today's purposes, How to Read the Bible, The Unknown God Made Known. Enjoy. And it's my intention uh, with just my life, but particularly this class explicitly, is to um, unlock the Bible for you. Because what, you know, there are many books written about the Bible, there are many good commentaries, and I have a lot of them, and you're welcome to come borrow some of them. There are a lot of good devotionals, and these are all good things. But fundamentally, the Bible was given to us for us to be able to read, and us to be able to understand, and as we're about to pray, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And to the extent that we can do that, then we will be edified, will be strengthened, will be encouraged, fed, as it were. This is the goal of the class. And so that's why the main text is going to be the Bible. But as you'll see, this conversation about the law and the gospel, as it were, why then the law? How do we reconcile or how do we balance or how are the antitheses, this grace and law, the promise and the gospel? How are these to be understood? In fact, constitute the, as it were, the, the decoder ring of the Bible. And I used to say that a bunch when I was in the Europe and I said it fast and I didn't think I had a southern accent and someone came up to me afterwards and was like what's a decoder ring and I was like well I'll have to say that a little bit more precisely um, a decoder remember those things remember like the guy well yeah I mean we're all now we'd have to be like it's like an app downloading mechanism or something I don't know how you would say it but or one of those QR readers that's what it is it's the law gospel is a QR reader for the Bible like it looks like a bunch of mixed up uh, squares and squiggles but when you actually understand what it's saying and then it makes sense to you. Does that suit your tracking with me? So that's the impulse behind this because uh, the law is no small thing. And the law, you know, is usually, as we'll talk about, uh, totally understood to be uh, under, uh, synonymous with the Old Testament. And there's some truth in that. There's, there's a lot of law in the Old Testament, but there's a lot of law in the New Testament. You know, no, most notably, Jesus. You know, Jesus summarizes the entire law. All the law and the prophets are what? Love your neighbor, love God, and love your neighbors yourself. So that's law right there. That's not gospel. That's not necessarily good news, particularly for people, well, not, not me, but you, who haven't loved God with our whole heart and strength and haven't loved their neighbors <laughs> themselves. But, you know, some people hear that and they get very nervous because if that's actually what we have to do, well, then where do we, Lord have mercy. And so you see, this is, these are real questions. Of course, that's just Jesus, just Jesus's law. But I mean, you just go down the list of all the apostles in their various ways are are telling their congregations to do things all the time. 
And yet, they're also simultaneously preaching about God's free gift of grace in Christ and the free gift of of forgiveness for sins and that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so how do we understand these things, right? This is the point. And I hope um, I piqued your interest a little bit. I mean, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't piqued somewhat. But but I have been dismayed um, by how few, I would say, uh, sort of professional Christians, meaning preachers, understand this distinction. And I personally was sort of brought into it uh, late in life. I would say, or late in my Christian life, I felt like in my 20s um, by someone who sort of opened the scriptures to me in this way. And I've never been the same since. Um, And we, we could talk about it, but it was really going from a confusion at the heart of the Bible, they saw this sort of dichotomy that seemed to be irreconcilable. I know I'm supposed to do all these things. I know I'm supposed to love. I know if, you know Paul's got a list of things, James, Peter, um, all of these people have a list of things I'm supposed to do, not to mention what the Old Testament says, and I don't even really understand any of that. But at the same time, I feel like I'm constantly coming up short because if I take Jesus's admonition at, at face value, that it's not actually doing the law externally, but actually from your heart, well, then you say, well, I don't really know how this works, but I guess I'll do my best and and just trust ultimately that it, it'll be better than, than the worst person that gets in heaven. I mean, that's that's and so many people live that way. So many people and actually so many people live that way that they don't want to come to church anymore. You know, they kind of get that. They're like, we get it. You know, we know we're supposed to, we should be better. But I mean, you know, you don't know my buddy. He's a lot worse than I am. Believe me. And he says he's a Christian. So he's a Christian and he doesn't seem to be too worried about it. Like, what am I worried about? And, you know, I go there and I feel sort of good, but like, I don't really like the music or I really like the music, but I don't like the preaching or whatever the case is. But there is a disconnect at the very heart of the message. And that is situated around a confusion about how to understand the law and the gospel. And so when you get, and I'm going to show you a couple of quotes, although I can provide you with uh, thousands of quotes from the luminaries of Christian history who basically say something along the lines of, I misunderstood the Bible and I understood it. And now I'm a preacher. You know, now I've, I've been, I've become a, a Moravian missionary. Now I am, I'm about to be killed by lions, but I don't care. I mean, think, this is just down the line and it's not an abstract or sort of unknown situation. It's every single point where the law is clearly seen, distinguished from the gospel. And you can simultaneously see in the cross, both the need for him to be there for you, but also the fact that he's there for you. That's the law and the gospel. So, okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I hope I've piqued your interest just a little bit. So um, when I talk about the law, I mean, it's summarized the Ten Commandments, and we're going to get to the Ten Commandments, don't worry. Um, but tonight's going to be a little bit of, a, of an overview. So we're going to pray together um, this collect, which, as I often say, um, is one of my favorites from Cranmer, because it gets to the heart of what we're doing here and sort of his, his um, uh, understanding of the gift of the Scriptures to the church. So let's pray together. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who calls all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Pardon me. So... 
This is um, a, a collect, and I talk about this a lot, but it bears repeating here today, that Cranmer penned. It was new to the prayer book. Not all the collects were new. He kind of uh, cut and pasted a lot of church history into it. But this one encapsulates his understanding of why the Bible was so important, is that it gave, it was given to the world by God for our learning. And that we pray for this. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, so you hear them in church, read, there's an idea that you would learn, you know, mark, study, and then inwardly digest so that in by patience and comfort of the Holy Word, we may ever embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. And so that's, um, I've been growing in that conviction in my life. You know, so everyone has, you know, Americans, they say, you know, we all have a hundred Bibles and no one knows, you know, where they are, you know, or something like that. I mean, we, we, um, we take for granted how ubiquitous and easily accessible our Bibles are, but when we actually appreciate what is being um, offered to us in them, there should be a certain, or, or there's a growing reverence. Um, you know, I saw this funny meme about, um, it was with the Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's a wonderful man um, in many ways, um, a great actor, you know, just about like Tim, like the Tim Allen of muscle action, you know, the greatest actor of all times, Tim Allen. Anyway, um, but he, uh, <laughs> I thought that was funny. Have you not seen the Santa Claus movies? Um, but he, um, there's this funny meme where he says, uh, the other person was saying, I wish I could hear God speak. And he says, uh, read your Bible. And then he says, um, yes, but um, what, what is the next one? He says, but, oh yeah, but I want to hear his voice. And he said, well, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> you know, and it was pretty funny, I thought. Um, and there's some conviction behind that. And I want to give you, I'll give you my credentials. You know my, you, you know me now, but I just thought I should just resituate this, is that I wrote a book on this topic. Um, I spent six years, um, well, longer than six years, but six years overseas in particular, wrestling through these concepts. And so I'm not um, the expert, but I am actually an expert on this relationship. And and I'm, I'm surprised in my own life the continual evolution of it. You know, I'm, I haven't just, I haven't, wouldn't disavow anything that I wrote in this book that came out in 2016. But um, there's, you know, you throw on uh, culture, you throw on uh, life change, you throw on children, you throw on life, and then things begin to settle out differently. And so I'm excited to revisit this because I've taught this class in a variety of ways every five years or so for 15 years and it's always a little bit more of a of a sort of a it's like a stew you know it gets a little bit I think better or maybe you know depending on your taste uh, with age but I wanted to point this out that Martin Luther is a person that will be credited uh, with sort of solidifying this this sort of understanding between the law and the gospel, but he is not alone in that by any means. And I'll show you a quote real quick from um, from William Tyndale, who predates Luther. You know, he's the uh, uh, contemporary, excuse me, but he, um, you know, he's one of our English our English our English people who uh, are are British uh, theologians that we look for. And he simply says this: the law and the gospel are two keys. The law is the key that shutteth up all men under condemnation, and the gospel is the key which opens the door. And list them out. So you can see there is, I just want to put, like I said, one of a hundred different quotes about people that begin to get this and then they begin to see the way that God works through the scriptures, through his word, his preachers and his written word um, on the hearts and minds of, of his people. And that's going to have a real bearing on how we understand the Ten Commandments going forward. But I wanted just to read this one section from Luther for you. And this is a famous sermon from 1532. And he says this, 
Um, what St. Paul has in mind is this, that throughout Christendom, preachers and hearers alike should teach and should maintain a clear distinction between the law and the gospel, between works and faith. He so instructed Timothy, admonishing him in 2 Timothy 2.15 to, quote, divide rightly the word of truth. Distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom, one that every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it's not possible to tell who is Christian and who is a pagan or a Jew. That much is at stake in this distinction. So, you know, again, you can take his word as wavily as you'd like, but um, he clearly had an idea that this was something worth uh, sort of getting your head around. And so that's what the whole class is about this week. So let's begin with a bigger question um, as we get into uh, the question of the law. And that is simply this, one that everyone has to answer. Oh, sorry. I don't see. I should have turned on this TV. And that's uh, simply what's wrong with the world. You know, this is one that everyone has to answer. I mean, it's, and some people say nothing. You know, they're usually kind of laughed off um, or they're very young, you know, or sort of some sort of, um, like uh, Marie Antoinette, some sort of incredibly uh, sort of a high-walled bubble. But basically, people have had to reflect upon what's wrong with the world. Now, the easiest question for that, for most people, is you, not me, you. You know, someone, someone other than me. Um, and that, you know, has taken a variety of uh, factors throughout all of history. I mean, you can go back to the ancient pagans. I mean, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these, everyone of any sort of intellectual uh, breath has considered this question. And then even normal everyday people uh, who aren't sort of given to philosophize, which is fine, uh, still have an idea about what's wrong, you know. And usually it has something to do with their own present circumstance. Like, I'm not, I don't have enough money. I'm not royalty. I have too many children. I don't have enough children. I'm, I'm you know, I wish I were a little bit taller. I wish I wasn't bald. I wish I had a bat and a hat and a cat. You know that song? Anyway, so Google it. Anyway, so I wish there's something wrong with you, and you have to answer the question. So how does this manifest itself? Well, in, these are big terms, but I want to give you a little bit of uh, fun words to use at your cocktail parties that no one would want you to use these words at, but uh, you never know. Um, so the base level question of what's wrong with us is essentially who are we? You know, what is, what is a human being? This is a question of anthropology, from anthropos for man, and ology, which of course from logos, it means study of, you know, however you want to do it. And then ontology, the study of being, these are sort of the same ideas. All that means for you is that what does it mean to be a human, which is a simultaneous question of what's wrong with us or what's not wrong with us, you know? And, and people have answered this in a variety of ways for human history. We need to be richer, we need to be healthier, we need to be more educated, we need to be less educated, we need to be, um, you know, uh, all look this way, all look that way. Like, people have ideas, you have ideas, about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with you and what's wrong with the society. And, you know, so we're gonna listen to this, some of you listen to this tonight, uh, lots of different ideas about how to fix the world and what's wrong with people. Well, this question, of who and what is wrong with us necessarily develops into what's called soteriology from soterio, which means um, uh, uh, to save, to, to, to heal. And this is where you go to find an answer for this. So you notice if your problem is we don't have enough school, where do you find your salvation, as it were? In the PTA or in college or in your PhD or, or, or to fix everyone. You know, you go to what you bring to the people who don't have what they need is your gospel, your soteriology, as it were. You know, you think people are too poor. And again, these, there's nothing, there's, 
there's some truth to all of these, but I'm talking about when you fundamentally consider what is wrong with a human being. You think that people are, you know, since the Enlightenment, people basically have considered one of two things. If you're John Lockean, it's a guy that had an idea called tabla rasa, which is actually what most people in America still believe, that you are born sort of a blank slate, and then you get messed up by your society, your parents, and your friends, and your teacher. You're like this. You know, you're a blank slate, and you're born, and then and this is actually part of the argument and part behind, like, quality of life issues when people consider who gets to be born or not. You know, like, well, look at the parents they'd be given to. You know, that would totally mess up that child. You know, that's a, that's a non Christian idea, but it's a very powerful one. So the, 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 the tabla rasa, this is John Locke. Well, the flip side of that is a guy named Rousseau who had this idea of the noble savage. And it's a variation of it. And he basically said, well, the problem is that you're born similarly noble, but then society devalues you and sort of turns you into a monster, right? And so if we could just get rid of all, and this is a little bit like Freud when he's had his civilization and discontents. He basically says, like, if we could just get rid of the internet, he didn't have the internet, but I mean, there's some truth in that probably. We'd I'll be happier, but um, nevertheless, if your idea is what your problem is, will translate into your salvation, which then will be your ecclesiology, ecclesia, the gathering, which is you're going to get together with people who think like you, right? And get together with the PTA people, with the, um, the microfinance people, with the hemp, uh, you know, with 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 a, with a LSD, you know, liquid Kool Aid acid acid test, or you know, the psychosyllabin sort of guys. You're going to get to drop in and tune. Now, you're going to do something together. And this is how the world operates, is that we come, and, you know, people throughout history have had various access to the freedom of movement here. You know, it's not like the serfs were sitting around saying, you know, it's like that wonderful Monty Python. Remember when the, the king comes and he starts talking to um, the people that are that are farming, remember? And they have the discourse about um, about government and feudal times. Do you don't, you guys got to watch. We're going to make a list of movies. Um, but anyway, you know, not everyone thinks about this, but we fund fundamentally fall into it. That's the point. You know, I mean, why do you think there are like um, people find themselves, you know, drawn to or, or sort of taken over by um, by uh, strange, I wouldn't say strange, but like 10 years ago, they would have thought an esoteric um, um, hobby that has become like an obsession for them. You know, model trains. You know, all of a sudden they're like going to model train conviction conventions or, or yoga. I mean, yoga is an easy one because that actually is sort of connected to an ancient Hindu um, worship style. But, uh, but but, you know, think about your own life, you know, the way that people find salvation, something that is answering the question of their of their angst, of their anxiety, of their souls. And then they find themselves in a in a strange conference with model train enthusiasts. You know, and they're like, I've been waiting for this BNA, BNO railroad car for 10 years now. And I've spent my entire life savings, you know, recreating one in my basement. But you know what? Like, I don't have to take as many um, anti-anxiety medications as I used to. You know, I mean, people talk like this. This is is you. This is me. I mean, to a certain degree. So what do we do about that? I want to, um, well, the problem with this system, and this is getting to the law, don't worry. The problem with this system is that it's closed. This is the perennial problem with philosoph- philosoph- uh, f- philosophical systems, and it was noted as far back as 267 BC by a guy named Archimedes, and he was saying, this is famous, the Archimedean point. Now, I'm no physicist, but I do understand a little bit about levers and things. You know, Rob, you want to help us out on this one, but he basically said, if you could find a place far enough outside of the earth where I could get a big enough stick and find the right sort of, you know, uh, level 
forever, then I could move the earth. Meaning that if you could stand somehow outside of the earth and have a point by which you could then find a bearing, well then you might have some power over what our current situation is. You know, and this is the this is the famous um, you know, sort of the, the the triangulation, you know, like the North Star. You know, the North Star we know is within our our solar system, obviously, but nevertheless, it gives a third point outside of two points on our on our uh, world that helps us find direction. Well, that's fine in terms of circumnavigating the world, but in terms of our philosophical, theological, religious, moral, temporal place, we don't really have, we think, a North Star. Well, you see where this is going, I think, because we then have the cross. Now, the cross for the world was God's, as it were, Archimedean point over against our closed system of what's wrong with us, where do we find salvation, and who and how do we then get together and find, minister that salvation, that then redirects our thinking. It becomes what I have said in some writings recently, a cruciform epistemology. And all that means is that we begin our thinking about who we are and who God is by looking at the cross. Because see, the problem is throughout all of history, people begin with one of two other ways of thinking. They begin thinking that we are the measure of all things. Remember Protagoras, you know, man is the measure of all things. Well, that's going to get you so far um, and it's going to start, you know, turning in on itself and it's going to look a lot like the early 20th century, you know, in Europe, sadly. Um, but then people begin from the top down and they begin sort of with the God of the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. You know, God is the prime movers at Aristotle. You know, he begins to have all these principles in the world. And, and there's some expediency to both of those because you can get pretty far with respect to um, describing the world, but only just so far because what you finally will end up describing is a world that is broken, full of people hurting each other, and devoid of any hope for redemption. That's what you'll find. It's not surprising. This is essentially the world that people are arguing about now. You know, and in a certain sense, you could argue that people are saying that, that they're victims of a broken system are arguing from the bottom up. The people that are arguing that the system is, um, you know, the system is uh, fine and needs to be tweaked are arguing from the bottom top down. And there's, you know, a lot of expediency and sort of interesting argumentation being made. But what's lacking in that conversation in particular is the very thing that, that the cross brought, which was, um, which was, a, a deeper um, insight into what really was wrong with us and what really needed to have happened. Now, that wasn't a political statement. That's just a practical of how this operates in the everyday world. So what does this mean for cruciform epistemology? This means that God has revealed himself to us. This means that we are not in a closed system, and he has revealed himself in a dramatic way through the Jews and then through the cross and then to the world through two words. That's what we're saying, the law in the gospel. The law has been spoken from on high, as we'll see from Sinai, thundering down, manifesting itself into the life body politic of the Jews, but then taken on by Jesus, deepened. You know, people think Jesus is like the nice, kind God and the Old Testament gods, like the mean grandfather that's kind of like, you know, his back hurts all the time and get out of my, you know, like I didn't. But Jesus made, Jesus made things a heck of a lot harder. You know, I mean, remember the Sermon on the Mount. We can talk about it, but the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus his taking of the Ten Commandments and just ratcheting it up to an impossible height. And he's like, you've heard it said all these things. Well, I'm going to tell you, you have to do it from your heart uh, without question um, or else. And then the question is, well, what else? What else?
what or else? Well, that was the cross, or else, or else somebody's going to have to die. Well, thank goodness he did for us. But you see how this works, is that the, the, the natural desires and the reality of our human world are not um, denied by the Bible and are not um, sort of uh, minimized or, or in any way um, uh, not taken very seriously, but they are put into the proper context through an external revelation of God, through his law and his gospel, which will then give us time to reflect back on what exactly is going on in his address to us in both these two words for our, for our learning, so sometimes for our conviction, but ultimately and fundamentally for our encouragement and our hope. Back to Cranmer. Inwardly digest so that we will set forth and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Because it's good news. I mean, this is what's hard for people to believe. It's, it's good news that God has spoken to us. You know, it's, um, it's not good news initially for sinners. You know, a guilty verdict is not a good uh, 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 word unless the payment has been made. But you see, this is how this, this works. And so, again, I could stop. Uh, I want to I keep going. I love this. This is from the holodeck. Remember when Jean-Luc Picard went on the holodeck? deck and he like God remember the hall did y'all not watch TV when you were like in the 90s and 2000s because when they went on the holodeck and then he um, you know they had like the the side specials they all dressed up in period costumes I just think I think memes are funny and this is how my brain works I just google an idea and then the one the least offensive meme that pops up I put up on the screen so and I have a safe search on don't worry so anyway um, so what are we supposed to do with that information uh, I'm about to tell you uh, but this is good the timing is working perfectly does that did, do, does anyone have have any huge, I don't, I don't know, like reactions to that? Laza, was that sufficient for you? Did you? Yeah, I mean, you've heard it before, but like she's very, she's very, she's wonderful. She's very sensitive to me being misunderstood. Um, <laughs> so how could that happen? <laughs> but uh, um, but so, so do you see this? I just wanted to lay it out because we're, we're trying to talk, we're, we're easing into a discussion. This is, this is where I should say as, a, as an aside, I maybe I should have led with this, is that I'm in the process of putting together, I hope, a book um, from these reflections, um, but have to do with the with the the gift of the Ten Commandments with respect to our lived life uh, when understood in light of the law and the gospel. So this is this is new stuff for me, and I'm very excited um, about it. So, okay, well, if we're not no questions, we're going to continue because we're going to it's going to be fun when you see how this all un- unravels. You yeah. Did, you did not actually ask anyone. I didn't. I needed to own the silence. Does anyone have any questions? It's true. I'm getting the hang of it a little bit. All right, good. That's called owning the silence. I just owned it. Uh, so, so we go. So here's the question: um, the great question of the world, as a result of this, is the unknown God. You remember when Acts 17, when Paul uh, goes up to the Areopagus and he says, "Men of Athens, I see that you're very religious. You know, you have, um, uh, you even have an altar to the unknown God. You know, because the Romans um, and Greeks were not particularly." Um, they were like uh, very uh, pluralistic, we should say. Um, you know, they were just like, well, you want to keep worshiping your God, that's fine, as long as your God doesn't mind you paying taxes to us, you know, and sending your young men to fight for us. And, you know, to the extent that your God just stays out of the way, then sure, you can worship. I mean, it's not unlike the way that religious, quote unquote, liberty is de- developing in the U.S., sadly, or at least in the West. You know, believe what you want, sure, 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 but don't let it actually affect anything you do, right? Um, but that's kind of how the Roman pantheon was, and in that sphere, 
easier. You had a lot of very thoughtful, super religious people, you know, but by and large, your average Roman and Greek person were probably not unlike your average sort of Christian, you know, we wanted to kind of get things together, but didn't want to like over be too, you know, didn't want to get too into it or whatever. You know, you know how people are, sadly, but nevertheless, Paul walks into the place where they were intense about this and says, I see you're very religious. You even have a, an altar to the unknown God. And he begins to say and preach to them that, well, you are right to worship God, but what you believe is unknown has been revealed. You know, and this is the Apostle Paul ultimately would say that so often that he got beheaded, um, you know, because people were, were upset when you said, yes, I'm, it's good that you believe in God, but you're believing in the wrong God or your sort of confusion, your plane needs to land because it's run out of gas, you know, and I can tell you where it should. And this is what the problem of the world is, is that we are stamped by, according to the Bible, we're getting to sort of explicit uh, Judeo-Christian biblical understanding here, that since we are, are stamped in the image of God to be worshiping creatures, male and female, you know, we're, we're sort of relationally um, constituted in that way, and nevertheless because of sin which entered the world, we are blinded, not just simply blinded, but become imminent enemies with this God. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that they are, that what we see about God, everyone knows there's a God, but we we suppress the truth of God by a lie. Because if we admit there's a God, well then that brings into question all of the things that I've been blaming you for about my life and not me. You see how this works? And so this is why we are not just sort of indifferent. You know, the Bible does not paint an indifferent non-Christian person. The Bible paints a, a willfully um, lying, sort of rebellious, stiff-necked person who's not a Christian. Now that doesn't mean you go tell them that. You know, like by the way, you're a you're a liar, says the Bible. You know, but we but we like Doctor House. Remember that show? Remember Doctor House? What did he say? Like you know, everybody lies. Well, that's what the Bible knows that everyone is lying when they say they don't believe in God. They're just because what they don't want to believe is a God who actually exists, who would then have some control or demand or obligation over their lives. This is I mean, this is from the beginning to the end. So why then did God come into, or how did He then come to address this unknown question? Right. Well, he spoke. This is what happened. He spoke first through, um, well, he called Noah, and then he called, you know, uh, all the way up into Abraham. He sort of gets the world together um, up until Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. And then he begins this process of redemption through Abraham, which began to set in place a promise that would be his word about who he is and who the world is over against all the other arguments about, about who God is or who God may or may not be. And this initially, uh, well, to this day, actually, remains very problematic for Jews in particular, because people consider you walking into a world that does not believe in Yahweh and saying that, well, your gods are idols, <laughs> you know, your gods don't exist. Um, that that got them in trouble back then and continues to get them in trouble now. And of course, Christians, by extension, you know, you can, as long as you continue to believe that your God is a God among some, well, then you're fine. But if you actually lay in the plane and say, actually, you know, um, our God is the only God. Like, that's not even like, he's not even like the biggest one. Like, y'alls aren't gods. And that, well, those are fighting words. And they have been, you know, we have thousands of years of history of attestation. And so we say that, as Peter says to his church, with all gentleness and all humility and with weeping, you know, because we want people to actually know the real God, because then how he speaks will be intelligible to his people. Because if you do not know the real God, well, then when the world speaks to you, 
it's going to be very confusing indeed. You know, what is aging? You know, what is sickness? What is suffering? What is, um, you know, still, what are stillbirths? What are, what are bad parents? What are wars and rumors of wars? You know, what are, what is gray hair? Like, what is time? You know, these are all questions that God seems to be throwing at us, uh, or at least whoever's in charge is not stopping them from being asked of us. And if we don't know from whom, from whose hands those are being given, um, or who is being, who is still at the wheel, as it were, well, then don't be surprised if people get very angry, very angry and very frightened. Um, and this is where the, the, the people live. And this is nothing new. You know, this is the great difference. There's a, if you know who's speaking, even if it's a hard truth, then you know that they love you. Well, then that's an altogether different thing than if it's someone you don't know. You know, I mean, this is like, this is a, my old analogy. If someone says, I'm coming to get you, right? You know, like that's really, really good news or really bad news, you know, because if it's this guy, then it's really bad news, right? But if it's this prince, the prince is coming to save you. You know, like I tell the little kids when we're baptizing them, you know, this is the, this is the promise of the prince is coming back. You know, like this is the, he'll never leave you. This is what this means. You know, this sort of thing like that's, that's amazing, you know, but if it's, if you don't know that, then you sort of, you're lying to them because you're lying to yourself. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And that's what God knew would be the case, which is why he spoke into the world through his law and then his gospel. So questions? Yeah, Phil. You said um, didn't want, um, didn't want to know I mean, I think atheists are pretty easy to look at, but the majority of the people, you know, even if you get into, I just bought a book by Sam Harris, who's one of these atheists who wrote a book like Spirituality for the Non-Believer, you know, and it turns out he's not really an atheist, in turn, he's just an agnostic, you know, which means he doesn't, will not believe in anything. Um, uh, well, well, let's put it this way, he's open to the possibility of being wrong, he just doesn't think if he's wrong, it'll be a really bad, um, you know, it'll be a really bad idea, which is where we might want to argue with him. But I think that, um, so let's go back a little bit to your question and look at what happened when sin came into the world. Because the primal, the primal uh, temptation for Adam and Eve, remember, they, God created them, male and female created them, have dominion, multiply, subdue the earth. You know, we gave you a garden. What else do you want? You know, we paid your gas money, kid, and your insurance. Like, and you still got kicked out of school, you know, sort of thing. But anyway, um, that's too personal to me. <laughs> but, um, I wasn't kicked out, but, but it was close. Uh, but anyway, um, is the... Um, uh, so the, the temptation, the primal temptation, and people ask about this, why did God not want them to eat of the tree of, of uh, good and evil, right? The knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and, you know, people have speculated about that, but the most convincing uh, answer I have come to, and again, this is talking about pre I mean, this is, you know, all speculation, doxological speculation, is that because he as a good father doesn't have to explain himself to his children, <laughs> you know? I mean, maybe someday, but good parents do things all the time that um, their children don't understand and for their own good. And it was not a test necessarily, but it was just a relational reality that was then transgressed. Because, you know, if you if you said, son, you know, I can't explain it to you now, but don't drink that that um, thing with the skull and crossbones on it, you know? And it's like, well, why not? Well, look, I mean, it's, it's hydrochlorazine or whatever, you know, it's something you don't want, but you could get into it, but if you just wanted to say, trust me. And so that was the relationship they had 
head until the serpent came and did what? Came right at that trust relationship and said, did God really say that you shouldn't um, eat of it? Well, you know why he said that? Because he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Because he knows that if you eat of it, not only will you be like him, then you'll never die. And that seemed to be very appealing to Adam or to Eve. And then Adam was was more than willing to go along with it um, instead of, you know, having this sort of, you know, beating the snake up or whatever, you know, which is what he could have done or should have done. But I, anyway, that's a speculation about what they might have, what would have happened had they not done that is actually in the second book of C.S. Lewis's three-part space trilogy called um, Prelandria. So if you want to actually read what C.S. Lewis kind of speculates about what a world, what that conversation would look like, it's really quite something. But anyway, Bell, but your question is, so when we fell out from the relationship with God, then the known God became the unknown God. And what was a loving father became a hulking shadow with a stick. This is what happened. And so when we see him coming into the garden, you know, where are you, Adam? Adam says, well, I heard you. So I was and I was naked and ashamed and afraid. So I hid. Well, that's not what, you know, when you come home from work, you know, and you're like, kids, and everyone's cowering in fear, you know, in the corner because they're so terrified of you. There's, there's an indication something's wrong. And in this case, it wasn't wrong with the father, but it was wrong with the kids because they had had this, this relationship, this, 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 um, this trust destroyed. So the entire, as it were, arc of redemption is the restoration of that trust, which is why it couldn't just be the prophets were good insofar as they were preaching, but they didn't ever take the next step. I mean, even though most of them died, none of them came back to then say, peace be with you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world knows, but as that I give you, you know, and they were all waiting for the final prophet, you know, John, to signal the Messiah, which is what we see. So again, that's why when I see people who are, who are, um, you know, angry and sort of willfully pushing God away, which is everyone, including us, you know, in our sinfulness, I mean, including our rebellious hearts, I mean, this is what we come and confess, then you just that we're given to pray and to witness and to preach and that's what we do you know because con you're gonna you've seen this before you know people sort of get convinced to come to church because the coffee's good you know you know or they have some you're gonna meet your best friends in the world you know or the nicest people are there well i hope they don't come when so-and-so shows up you know because then it's well most of the nicest people but gosh do they have to come when you know old aunt betty came or whatever you know because she's not nice um and then your whole system falls well that's because that's not the system that we've been given. The system we've been given is that rebellious people are brought to their knees by the preaching of the law and gospel and then raised up by the power of the Spirit to new life and faith, and then they become people who would just want to hear that all the time. And, you know, if we didn't have 2,000 plus years of that working, um, then we might question it, but it does. So anyway, I'm going to keep going because we're going to get out of here uh, right on time. Um, but we have, we're going to get to the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to get past that really scary thing right there. Um, so this is the whole answer. The unknown God made known. This is the um, work of the Jews in, 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 uh, initially, who were, as God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then reiterates in 15 through the covenant ratification seminary, uh, ceremony, that through the Jews, salvation would come to the world. And we're going to look at particularly at how the Apostle Paul picks up on that, because that'll be the linchpin for how to understand um, the, the entire sort of history of Israel and the work of 
God in Christ. But I, you look at this. Remember when Jesus came in the road to um, Emmaus after he was crucified and raised. You know the story, right? He's walking back with his friends, or he's walking back, and they're all kind of huddled. And you know, he's like, "What's the big deal? What's going on? Where have you been? Did you not know that this man was crucified?" And he begins to explain to them that you know, didn't you know? And it says, beginning with Moses, why the Messiah had to come and be crucified, raised up, and, and he would be then, um, uh, I mean, uh, he would be arrested and then beaten and crucified and then raised up. And then, of course, they still don't really understand. And you get this. You know, I've seen people in the store, like when I'm going to the gym, and I'm always embarrassed about that, you know, and it's like, oh, hi, Father Coke. And I'm like, oh, I'm sweaty mess, you know, or whatever. Like, you don't understand people. You know, like teachers, like your kids see you out at a, a restaurant and they don't understand you. Like, you know, you're just cognitive dissonance. Well, these guys were sort of not given to understand who Jesus was until what? Until they had a meal and they, uh, and, and they uh, um, you know, their eyes were open. And then he, he goes away and it says, didn't our hearts burn within us when what? When he opened the scriptures and we shared a meal. You know, so what do you think we do every Sunday? You know, that's what we do. We do every Sunday to recognize once again our Lord in the midst of the, of the uh, word and the breaking of the bread. Um, so... All right, we've got 12 minutes left in this perfect timing. So we're going to go to Romans right now. If you have your Bible, then turn to Romans chapter 3. Um, um, excuse me, Romans chapter 4. Uh, yes, um, because we're going to read through some of this. Um, and I'll try to make it... I mean, we could teach, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones taught a Bible study, a preach through Romans for 17 years. <laughs> you know, so we're not going to be able to do justice to all of the... Uh, the whole chapter four right now tonight, but we'll do our best. But I want you to see this in light of everything we've been talking about. Remember in your head, unknown God, God made known, fear of God, trust restored. Well, these are the words, these are the underground of what Paul begins to talk about when he talks about the promise made to Abraham realized in Christ for the sake of the world. So it says, what then are we, um, hold on, wait, um, where did I find that? Oh, Roman, no, sorry, it is Romans 3. Sorry, back, back. Um, Romans 3, verse 9 is what we're going to begin with. So what are we then? Uh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Now, this is the law. This is what you're hearing. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's a pretty dire diagnosis right there. And he continues, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, we could, again, stop and just expound on that for, for days, but I'll try not to. But I hope you just get the sense here is that he's talking the law, the judgment of the world um, is this sort of litany of what's wrong 
wrong with people. And then the reason the law came into the world was to silence the, the pretensions of every mouth that they would be stopped before God, that somehow they could merit righteousness, worthiness, acceptance by their, their works, as Paul says, by themselves. You know, that people are always like, well, he's a really good person. Well, not according to Paul, you know, not according to, to the cross, not according to the law. But that's not the only, that's not the only word. Um, so we'll go to the, I don't know why that, that's terrible. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know why it's not the, the PowerPoint keynote to PowerPoint doesn't work um, that well, but uh, let's keep going. This is chapter three, verse 21, just with your Bibles. You can stick away. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, but there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, which is a word that means to remove the wrath of from God to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means we uphold the law. And this is where we're going to skip um, this next section about Abraham because we're going to get to chapter 4, verse 13. We're going, to, we're going to finish. So skip over down to this one. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sam and Sarah's womb. And here's the key. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him as counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus the Christ, the, uh, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I don't usually want to read that lengthy a passage, but in light of the work that we've been done um, initially, I want you to see how this begins to play itself out in the teaching and preaching of the Apostle Paul. Because it's not that the law was evil, but that the diagnostic reality of the law was intended to expose and reveal our need for a Savior. This is why when the law was instituted in the Old Testament, it was simultaneously with the sacrificial system. Because as soon as God began to tell people what to do, there needed to be a means by which they could be cleansed. 
friends. You know, it's like when well, you've got all these rules, he said, don't stand on the grass. And we're like in the middle of a, you know, a three mile grass field and we're going to be walking on it for a long time. So what do we do? You know, like every every blade we have to pay for, this is going to be painful. Right. And so this is how the law began to work itself out in the people of Israel, carving and hewing a people out from the idolaters and the pagans um, around the world so that they would be prepared to recognize the Messiah when he arrived. You know, this is why the prophets, I mean, go back to the prophets and all they do is essentially is the same thing, you know, various contexts. um, But essentially, like you have forgotten God, you are going to other uh, other temples, you're intermarrying with people who are taking you away from the faith, you are playing too much golf on Sunday, you don't actually believe any of this, your children are wanton and running around and none of you believe any of this. Repent and return. And um, God is faithful and merciful to that. Although they killed the prophets, they're finally like, we've had enough of you. You can't come to our Christmas party ever again, Ezekiel. And in fact, we're going to have, you're going to cut your brake lines, you know, because you're not coming. We don't want you anywhere near us. Um, So what do we do about that, though? Well, the power of faith through the promise doesn't... Do away with the commands of God. But this is this is a crucial point. I've gotten fights across the world about this because what people want to say is that the law is bad. And if it if it constrains you, then it needs to be rejected because Paul talks about the curse of the law. Right. In other other books, he talks about those who live under the law or under the curse. So what does it mean for us who no longer live under the law? Do we then not have any idea what we do? No, we go back to the voice analogy, to the to the known God analogy, and we begin to process everything that God has said to the world through his law, not as an accusation from an angry club wielding father, but as a promise from a loving and trustworthy, uh, a trustworthy father, someone that can be someone that's gone ahead of you so much ahead of you that he laid down the life of his son to save you. You know, that begins to soften the hardness of the heart and that begins to to. Um, you know, begin to holster your weapons. You know, there's no there's no enemy in front of you. You know, lay your weapons down. We're not here to fight you. Um, but there's some things that are, the law is going to um, uh, say to you that are going to be hard to hear. Uh, but if you didn't know how much you were loved and how deeply you were forgiven, then you may not. You may just run like you have been doing the past 50 years of your life. But we're we've caught you. You know, like we're, we 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 got you. We got you here for a moment. Listen, listen to what we have to say. And that's why when Paul talks about the actual way this works, he doesn't talk about laws. He talks about the fruit of the spirit. You know, the fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. You know, that's it's, 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 it, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What does he say at the end of that? Against these things, there's what? There's no law. That's right, because there's no, there's nothing stopping you. There's nothing stopping you from entering into the good promises of God. And you know, we're about to get to the Ten Commandments at the end, but you know, there's nothing. But we, we you, as you'll see, we've been talking about the first and second one the entire time. Um, but you know. For instance, when we get to the second table about um, not uh, like committing adultery or not murdering or stealing, like, there's nothing stopping you from from trying to red- eradicate these desires from your heart. There's no law against being generous or being faithful or being joyful, you know. But when the law comes in, is when you are actually toying around with, did God really say these things? Well, then there's a theological phrase you'll love called lex semper accusat, which means the law always accuses. Well, the law will always accuse that. 
you know, do not commit adultery, Jesus said, doesn't even mean look, don't look, but don't touch. It means don't even think about it. Well, that convicts uh, people every every day, you know, men, women, children, you know, didn't, and rightfully so. But there are days and times when there's a blissful, non-law, fruit-bearing season, however short, or, or maybe uh, in, when you say, huh, like this is not really, there's, there's no accusation here. This is the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so you see the, the juxtaposition here is not that God hasn't said, but that we know the God who now speaks. And that makes all the difference. This is written in a book. You're not going to read it. You don't have to. I did. So you can tell you a guy named Oswald Bayer changed my life on this. And he wrote a book called Promissio, um, which was in German, although I think he could have written in Latin, which I can do, which was very uh, sort of very um, disconcerting, you know, because my advisor asked me, he's like, would you like to read and write in German or Latin or English? And I was like, is that a real question? <laughs> is that a real? So uh, anyway, but um, but he wrote a book called Promissio and basically uh, situated the the, the linchpin, uh, which the Apostle Paul does very clearly, but particularly the Reformation inside at this very point, and said this is the this is the hub around which it all operates, which is why all teaching, preaching, singing, discipleship, um, prayer is all centered. It's like a double barrel shotgun at your heart. Um, about this very issue because we were afraid. You know, guilt, fear, and shame are real things. And if we ever forget that God has addressed us at those places, then in the promise, well, then we're going to start building defenses up against them. You know, like, I don't want to come back to church. I don't want to read this Bible. I don't want to read, I don't want to hang out with Christian people. Like, everyone's making me feel uncomfortable and, and strangely anxious. And, you know, I'm good enough anyway. And that's 20 years of your life. You know, we're trying to, to fight that. Not because we need more people, but because that's a tough 20 years. <laughs> that's tough, you know. Um, those that, yeah, that kid's already 20 years old, you know. And so we're, um, but it's never too late. Never too late. Um, so in conclusion, Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, well, we don't have to go too far into it, but I was talking about the first two commandments tonight. Because the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods but me. Well, that's either the law or a promise. And Luther, for instance, when he finally realized that Jesus was for him and not just a, a, a greater Moses, began to see that as a great comfort. It's like, you, you've chosen me. I'm yours. Like, I will have no other gods but you. Like, my heart is rebellious and I'm often prone to wander. You know that song? You know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, the counterpoint to that song is the first commandment in light of the promise. Like, you will have no other gods. Like, take heart. You know, I mean, you examine yourself. Like, you know, Know, pray, do the work, the steps, but but don't be afraid that God will leave you because He's you're His, you know. And how do we know that? Well, we don't. Or how do we know how Jesus answered that? I'm not going to read the whole prologue, but you know the prologue to the Gospel of John that God has been revealed. Um, there was uh, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God and I'll skip down to the end for the law was given through Moses 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now you have to understand that a little bit better now, I hope, after what we talked about. I mean, grace and law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And now what has God done through his son? He's made himself known to the world so that now all who have ears to hear will no longer be afraid of his voice. That's what he did. And again, we're going to be, no, I'm just keep talking about this. Don't worry. Um, and then the second commandment that you will not speak in vain of God. Remember, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Well, that's not just saying like, God darn it, you know, or cussing, although that's not good to do, you know, but, um, but taking the Lord's name in vain is speaking wrongly of him or in ways that he's not authorized you to speak. That's what, so like, I'm not going to name particular Christian books, but there are a lot of Christian books that do not meet this test of speaking the way, uh, of, you know, the Lifeway Christian bookstore is not a safe place because people make things up about God. Well, Jesus came so that we would not speak about him in vain by saying this. Matthew 25, or 28, excuse me. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they, uh, they, uh, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make ba- disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So that's why we care about the Bible. Because Jesus said in John 17 that he would send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to remind them of everything that he taught them. And then he sent them on their way to end into the world to teach them everything that I taught you so that you would not transcribe the second commandment, which is to take the Lord's name in vain. So we don't speak about God in abstractions. We don't speak about him as unknown. We don't speak about him in any way other than he's given us to speak him. And therefore we fulfill the second commandment, which is to not speak of him in, in the wrong way. And so again, we're going to keep going down these things, but I just want you to see that this is how, um, this is how we unlock the Bible. This is how, I mean, again, this would maybe send you to seminary after you start you know start getting your mind blown a little bit about how deep and wonderful this is but the idea that we're confronting and I'm in right now at every single point is that somehow God is confusing that his word is obtuse and un, um, un, un, not understandable and therefore leaving us to our own devices in a very hostile and confusing world well that is has nothing what he's given us to do and it's not that you don't have to have the PhD. some people need to have PhDs in all sorts of fields to like help navigate sort of the edges. But fundamentally, it is an understandable message that he's given to us in his law and his gospel secured for us in his son, which then leads us into a life of praise based upon the promise that he who has come to us will never leave us nor forsake us. So I'm going to leave you now with a prayer and then we'll uh, go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, continue to deepen our um, trust in you, Lord, as we, um, still beset by sin, often fall into patterns of guilt and fear and shame, rightly and wrongly, Lord, that we we run from the very source of healing that you have um, held out to us in your Son. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who both would be in touch with that healing, but also ministers in our own right to the lost and hurting around us. Lord, that as we love you, we would then love our neighbors as ourselves 
ourselves, not by modeling our holiness, but by pointing to the place where we have been met in you by your son and forgiven, healed, redeemed, and restored. We ask that you would be with us now. Keep us safe during, particularly during this time of this um, uh, pandemic. Lord, uh, we ask that you would um, uh, be with us now as we, as we leave and bring us back safely this time next week. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, as always, for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Lord willing, we'll all three be back with a regular show next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Standing firm.